Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Ken Samples with a biblical and historical discussion of the human soul. The soul traditionally understood is not a physical reality. Uh, it is soulish, it is a spiritual reality, and it's right at the core of us, and it's who we really are. That's Ken Samples, coming up next. The Bible makes many references to the soul, but what is it? Where does it go when we die, and what is the biblical understanding of the soul? These and other questions will be tackled today by Ken Samples, senior scholar at Reasons to Believe and author of Christianity Cross-Examined. Ken, how important is it for believers to have a sound that is a biblical understanding of the soul? I think it's very important. I think the Bible addresses the issue of what is a human being, and uh, I think that then relates to many very critical ethical issues like abortion, uh, like euthanasia, or what is called mercy killing. Uh, so I think the question of who we are and what we are is very important. Uh, traditionally, uh, secular people have denied the existence of the soul. Uh, not all Christians agree on exactly how to define the soul, but I see this as a very important question. And I think, Bill, apologetically, if the Bible does a good job of explaining human beings, I think that's a good reason to believe the Bible is true. Well, Ken, how has historic Christianity um, described or or define the soul, and, and maybe you can even d define what you mean by historic Christianity. Yes, yes. Well, by historic Christianity, it's it's very tempting, I think, to believe that uh, our own relationship with God in a personal way, you know, is Christianity. But here I'm talking about Christianity as a universal movement. Uh, and so Christendom, for example, would be made up of uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholic, and, and Protestants. Evangelicalism, of course, is a subset of uh, the Protestant tradition. So really, a, a broad sweep of historical Christianity will be my reference. Now, let me give you a few words here uh, for soul and then related a little bit to other important words like spirit and body. Um, the Hebrew word, obviously the Old Testament for soul, is nefesh. And the Greek uh, in the New Testament is suke, but there are also other important words uh, in Scripture that relate to this. The Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, and in Greek, pneuma, uh, often soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Now, we can touch on that when we ask, where does the soul come from? But the Bible also speaks about the, the uh, body. Uh, basar is a Hebrew word for body, and of course in the New Testament we call uh, the word soma. You've no doubt heard the uh, soma and suke relating body and soul together. And here's a definition that I find helpful about the soul. Uh, a soul would be, quote, an immaterial center of personal identity. Mm an immaterial center of personal identity. So the soul traditionally understood is not a physical reality. Uh, it is soulish. It is a spiritual reality. And it's right at the core of us, and it's who we really are. Now, now again, all Christians don't agree with uh, 
everything I'm going to tell you, but I think that's a pretty good uh, basic definition, an immaterial center of personal identity. Mm. And and, uh, Ken, as I understand it, you especially, well, I know you do because we've done interviews uh, on St. Augustine, but you especially like and appreciate his understanding and analogy in how he understands and explains the soul. Yes, uh, he has, a, uh, I think, a great little analogy. This comes from his most popular book, The Confessions. He talks about the soul as if it were a house. So he's using an analogy, and he describes the house. Uh, he says, because of our sinfulness, it's very small, and uh, it uh, needs reworking. But he then says that the Spirit of God, God's grace, comes in and enlarges our soul and uh, decorates our soul, uh, takes the disorder and put it into order. And so I like that. Uh, I think undoubtedly he's thinking of Jesus' words, in heaven there are many mansions, so my, my soul is, is, is like a house. Sometimes it's dirty and it needs to be cleaned. Sometimes it's small and it needs to be expanded. Well, Ken, is there a connection between the image of God, uh, as the scripture says, uh, God created man in his image and the soul? Yeah, this is, I think, a very important point. Um, When we talk about the image of God, we're talking about uh, something that appears in the first chapter of Genesis, Chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it says that God has created male and female in the image of God. Um, This is what seems to make us unique. Uh, Christian thinkers through the centuries have said human beings, because of the imago Dei, Latin for image of God, because of the image of God, we have dignity and value. And one of the critical passages of uh, the image of God and uh, the idea of the soul is found in Genesis 2-7. Uh, it says this, Then the Lord God, that would be Yahweh, formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So it, it appears that when God created us in his image, uh, that relates to the dust of the ground and the breath of life. Uh, you you can interpret that passage, and I certainly do, as kind of a body and soul. We, we have a physical body from the dust. We have a soulish component breathed out by God. And um, I, I think undoubtedly that relates to the image of God. Now, you can have differing ideas about what that image is. It could be that we resemble God. We have moral, spiritual, intellectual qualities, or it could we we relate like God does. The Trinity is like a family. Uh, we relate one to another, or it could be that we represent God. We're his vice regents. We take dominion over nature. But I think the creation of the soul and the image of God go together pretty importantly. Well, my guest today on His People is Mr. Ken Samples. He is Senior Scholar at Reasons to Believe, and we're talking about Christian perspectives on the soul. So, Ken, what is, um, and maybe this needs a little bit of a definition, uh, the biblical anthropology or, 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 or the understanding of, of human beings in terms of the body, mind, heart, soul, and spirit? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. I'm sure 
uh, people who read and study scripture raise that question. Um, and, and I think maybe a helpful way of thinking about it is that the Bible does talk about, in fact, Jesus uses the words uh, heart, mind, soul, uh, body. Mm-hmm. Um, there are kind of two broad positions among Christians as to how to understand that. One of them is called dichotomy, meaning two, that we're a body and soul, kind of a body-soul dualism, if you will. Mm-hmm. That position is distinct in the sense that soul and spirit are seen interchangeably. So we're a body and a soul, spirit, soul used interchangeably. Now, uh, there is another position called trichotomy, that we're body, soul, and spirit. I think that's of a uh, more of a minority position, but, but some people certainly have held it through the years. Mm-hmm. I think the way of understanding, you know, the issue of... Uh, uh, heart, mind, soul, body, I think that's really a Hebrew parallelism that's being set forth in the Greek context. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. He, he probably spoke mostly in Aramaic. I think what we're seeing there is it's a parallelism. If, if we take it literally, it would mean that we're five parts heart, mind, body, soul, etc., strength. I don't think Jesus is dividing us into parts. I think he's really saying there, love God with all of your being, your heart, your mind, your soul. I think the emphasis is on all of you, so to speak. The, the trichotomists, you said, they are the believe in the, uh, the soul, the spirit, and the body, and that's the minority position, and yet you do see the separate words of soul and spirit in the scripture, and the scripture says we're spiritually dead outside of Christ. And so I'm wondering why the the trichotomous position would be, why would that be the minority position? I think in many regards, uh, it would be the minority position uh, primarily because it seems that soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, when we look at uh, various examples, we discover that... Uh, uh, what is attributed to the soul is also attributed to the spirit. That you know, Jesus was was uh, uh, experiencing uh, right before his death. It, it affected his soul, and then it says it affected his spirit the same way. Uh, I think that's the strongest reason for being a dichotomist rather than a trichotomist. That that scripture broadly uses the two uh, together. But I also think that in that particular passage in which you've raised, I don't think when it says that our soul is dead and trespasses and sins, I don't think that means that somehow the spirit or the soul is no longer functioning. I think it has to do with our separation from God. Because we are cut off from God, we're cut off from the life of God. So, I think I think that's maybe a better way of interpreting that passage. Where do souls come from? And perhaps people might say, well, God, God creates them, God puts them there, but is there something more to that? Yes, there, there is a lot more to that. Uh, you have two kind of basic positions that Christians have largely held. Um, one of them is called creationism. I think that's probably the dominant position in church history. That's the idea that God creates a unique soul 
for every child that is conceived. Mm. So God created a soul for Adam. He created a soul for Eve. He creates souls um, in the Psalms 139. It says that he uh, he places us within our mother's womb. That's the creationist position, probably a secondary position, but held by some prominent people is called traducianism. That may be a term your listeners may have never heard. Traducianism is the idea that just as just as a husband and wife have the capacity to reproduce and uh, uh, bring forth a body of the child, that in um, producing that child's body, the soul of the mother and father actually reproduce the soul of the child. Now, now again, I think that's probably a secondary position, but it has seemingly some pretty good support uh, for it. Some early church fathers affirmed it. It would, it would convey the idea that God's not creating souls all the time, that he has created the soul of humanity. And just as we uh, partake Adam's fallen nature, also we partake of that spiritual component. So that that's very intriguing. I mean, I sometimes look at my family and I can see traits maybe in my children that are in me and my wife or mm-hmm. my parents. But I still think that many people would say it's better to say that God creates the soul. I should tell you this, and uh, I think that this is a this is a pretty small minority, but again, some thoughtful people, particularly today. Bill, some people I would call materialists. That is, they believe that human beings are just pure physical. Mm-hmm. We don't have an immaterial soul. They still believe in the afterlife, but they believe in kind of a monism, that we're a one thing, and that's that's physical or material. So that's why I call it Christian perspectives on the soul. I guess uh, where kind of the rubber meets the road in much of this is what happens to our body and soul at death. Yeah, this is a very important point. I, I saw a recent film that I wrote a blog article after death, which dealt with near-death experiences, um, which of course is a very fascinating phenomenon. I think that the Bible indicates, and again, there this is not a major discussion in Scripture, but it seems, uh, particularly in the writings of Paul, that we are body and soul, we're a unity. In fact, I think that's a very important point to make, that really Scripture talks about our unity. Uh, It talks about us being the unity of body and soul, or body and spirit, if if you prefer that term. So, we're a unit. What death, what happens at death from a classical Christian position would be that there's a separation of body and soul. It's temporary. It is, we're in the present state, then there'll be a future state where we'll be brought back into our resurrected body, but then there's the intermediate state. A person dies, their soul and spirit are divided. Here I'm looking at a couple passages from the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1, 21 and 23 and 24. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then he says in verse 23, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So he seems to be talking about departing being good. I would think that would involve a conscious existence, 
with Christ in the next world, uh, a temporary separation of our body. Here's another Pauline passage that I think also is very important. It is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and uh, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So that is kind of the classical position, that when we die, we're separated body and soul. But it's very important to remember that in the eternal state, we will be resurrected. We'll have a new body. Jesus had his body that died on the cross. Then in his resurrection, he had a resurrection body. It was the same body, but it had been changed. So there was continuity with his old body, but also discontinuity with his old body. And uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic philosopher, said in the Middle Ages that in the intermediate state, that is after death but before the resurrection, he said we're not fully human. He held a very strong view that we are body and soul. Our body is us. Our soul is us. So to be separated, we somehow are less than what we really were. Uh, that's a very powerful position. Well, Ken, I, I don't want to go down a big rabbit trail here, but this is obviously something that you're familiar with. Jesus, when he uh, went to Lazarus, when he went to Bethany, when Lazarus had died, and Jesus made the point that um, Lazarus sleeps, and he likened death to sleep, and there is a belief of soul sleep that we, we go to sleep until the resurrection. It's believed by some, probably yes. again in the minor, minority report, but uh, how are we to uh, understand that? Right. Uh, again, another minority position. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as conditional immortality. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists have, have advocated this for their entire history. Uh, it is held by other particular groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. It's also held by an increasing number of evangelicals. Hmm. So the idea would be that um, we're an animated body. When we die, we go to a state of sleep or extinction, and then we're awakened at the, at the resurrection. And so we have a, a conditional immortality. Now, again, a lot of times that's tied to the question of what happens to people in eternal judgment or uh, eternal punishment in hell. Usually conditional immortality is tied to the idea that when God punishes people in hell, he then annihilates them. They're not there forever. They're there for a period of time commensurate with their sin, and then he obliterates them. Um, I think that's a difficult position in light of Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul seems to say it's better to go and be with the Lord, not to fall asleep or to be extinct, but it appears as if we are uh, in the presence of God, there's statements in Revelation, for example, that talk about the saints before the uh, the temple of God. So it is a minority position, but it, it continues to grow. I think uh, largely, Bill, because people are often put off by this idea of eternal punishment. That's one reason for advocating it. Well, Ken, how will humans be uh, constituted, or, or what form will they take in eternity? Yeah, I think it's there's the very strong position that in the eternal state, so we're in the present world, and there is this intermediate state, but in the eternal state, uh, God will resurrect all souls, all people. 
Uh, they will be given a physical body, believers and non-believers. Then there'll be the great judgment. People who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior will suffer uh, an eternal punishment. Those who know the Lord will go on to eternal life. Uh, and that resurrection body will be an immortal body. It will be physical, but more. It will be a spiritual body. Um, to what degree we, we can understand that. But there won't be any pain. There won't be any dying. We will, we will have bodies like Jesus's after the resurrection. Um, uh, some of my friends have said when we've talked with each other about illnesses, it's, it's nothing a good resurrection body wouldn't solve. Mm -hmm. So as I get older, I, uh, I think about the value of that resurrected body. And I don't know. I, I, I am speculating, but I think maybe the, the, the model would be the body of Jesus post-resurrection. They, you know, they put finger in the side, they touched him, and yet he also had these new new characteristics and qualities of, of being an immortal body. So that's that, of course, is the hope. That is what Christians believe, that we will be with the Lord and uh, in our resurrected bodies. Well, Ken, how does uh, we ha we haven't really touched on the the subject of sin uh, to this point, but it's so central to understanding the gospel and to the history of man. How, how does sin affect the soul? Yeah, this this is I think a a very significant point. Um, you know, uh, sin affects the entire human being. So it not only affects the body. We're told that after Adam and Eve sin. Uh, they were expelled from the garden, and they were going to die. Um, I think we also see very clearly, uh, in particularly the writings of the Apostle Paul, that we not only are sinners, but we have a sin nature, that sin has somehow contaminated the inner us, the soul, the spirit, whatever, however you want to describe it. And so sin has affected uh, the inner you, if you will, again, if, if the soul is an immaterial center of personal identity, then sin has invaded the very core of our being. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, uh, and, and certainly Lutherans and Anglicans would agree as well, uh, in a total depravity that sin has affected our entire being. It doesn't mean we're as evil as evil can be, but it means that n not a part of us is left unaffected by sin. I think, uh, obviously, people are put off by God. They resist God. We look for our fulfillment in other things. Uh, St. Augustine called that a disordered life. Sanctification would then be reordering our loves and our commitments. Uh, and so sin is a very powerful force. Um, and I think it, I think we see it in, you know, prejudice, bias. We see it in hatred and discord and all of these kinds of things. And, and so if that is how sin affects the soul, how, can you talk about how conversion, that is faith in Christ, and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit affects the soul. That's right. It's always important when we talk about sin then to talk about grace. Um, God's grace is his unmerited favor. It is his love, his concern. Uh, we can look at words like grace, getting something we don't deserve, mercy, not getting something we do deserve, which would be God's wrath, his just wrath. 
God gives us a new birth. Uh, there is a spiritual rebirth, and uh, God begins to clean up that dirty soul. Again, back to Augustine. Augustine says, you know, uh, if my soul is like a house, my house is dirty. I need to somebody to come in and clean it and order it. And I love that expression because, you know, oftentimes as sinners, when we stop serving God, we don't stop worshiping. We worship other things, you know, money. Uh, food, sex, whatever it is, those are good things, but they're never intended to be the core of our existence in life. And so grace gives us a new life. I've met so many people, Bill, and I know you have as well, uh, in interviewing and being a radio person, where people describe their life as, wow, it's like my life began again. My life, I literally had almost a rebirth. That's the way the Bible talks about what God's grace does to our souls. He gives them life. My guest, uh, Mr. Ken Samples of Reasons to Believe. We're talking about Christian perspectives on the soul, and, and I'm wondering, you are, you're an apologist, you're a, a, a philosopher. What is the relationship between the Christian view of the soul and, and disciplines like uh, philosophy or, or even psychology? Yeah, this is a really good uh, topic. Um, I really think, Bill, that Christianity, by and large, uh, invented psychology, because in psychology, there's the outer you and the inner you. And when there is a conflict between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, we have all of these potential uh, challenges, uh, a discontinuity taking place within us. So, uh, I don't think that psychology began with Freud. I actually think St. Augustine had a lot to do because in his book, The Confessions, he's kind of taking, taking stock of his life, uh, looking within. Why, why was I motivated by this? Who am I really? I think Christians have always seen psychology uh, as an important component because we're dealing with the invisible side, the inner you. Some Christians are critical, of course, of secular psychology, who have very different presuppositions, maybe believe we, we have evolved from lower animals and reject a kind of spiritual idea. But I think even in philosophy, um, you know, there, there have been some great secular philosophers, but I would say I think two of the most influential philosophers in history were Christian, and that would be Augustine and Aquinas, and I think largely because they dealt with human beings as a unity of body and soul. They really tried to make sense of who we are as, uh, as physical beings as well as spiritual beings. So this issue of soul is very important to these fields of philosophy, theology, and psychology. Well, Ken, what would you say to those who, who don't believe in the existence of the soul, the separate existence of, of a soul or the soul and the body? Well, I, I, I think that there are evidences of our both our body and soul, the outer us, the inner us. I think we see evidence in emerging in neuroscience. I think we see evidence emerging in the field of psychology. Uh, I think we see that you cannot uh, reduce somebody or their consciousness just to the brain states. So I think that this is right at the heart of a lot of scientific research today. Uh, are we just a brain? And if, if we are, when the brain dies, does the inner us die? Or is it possible our mind 
and our soul uh, are in union with the body, and thus the brain could die, but we as conscious beings could continue to exist. I think that's at the forefront of neuroscience. I think it's debated heavily in psychology, and it's a very significant thing today in terms of the church. Where do people get their dignity? And I think it helps in this controversy about race, gender, and class. If all people bear the image of God, doesn't matter what skin color they have, it doesn't matter what gender they have, they have dignity and value because they bear the image of God as a unity of body and soul. Today, that's a very important point to make. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Ken Samples, senior scholar at Reasons to Believe. Ken discusses the soul in his book, Christian Endgame. Go to reasons.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Jeff Myers on how people of faith can transform the world by speaking and living the truth. When, when God was speaking with Abraham, talking about the promise that he was giving to him, He said, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul says that that blessing that was given to Abraham is is in part, at least, carried on through us. So the, the way we live our lives should be a blessing to other people. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.